Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law. A divided Supreme Court rejects a religious challenge. Tell us a little about the facts of the case. Interviews with prominent attorneys and Bloomberg legal experts. My guest is former federal prosecutor Jimmy Garule. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Jordan Rubin. And analysis of important legal issues, cases, and headlines. The Supreme Court takes on state secrets. Multiple lawsuits were filed against the emergency rule. Is this lawsuit for real? Bloomberg Law with June Grosso. From Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. We're in for June Grasso. Coming up on the show, we'll talk with Jake Belashini at the Alliance for Justice Action Fund about state Supreme Court judicial races and why these are courts worth paying attention to. And Jennifer Levi, director of GLAD's Transgender Rights Project, will join us to talk about a recent federal appeals court decision that gives transgender workers broader legal protections. But first, we're joined by Bloomberg News reporter Angelica Peebles to discuss the new lawsuit Moderna filed against Pfizer over the technology used to create the COVID-19 vaccine. Angelica, thanks for, for joining us. Tell us why Moderna is filing this suit and, and what the company is alleging. Moderna says they're filing this lawsuit now because they are trying to protect their mRNA technology platform that they've spent the past decade or so making. And they're saying that um, they're claiming that Pfizer and BioNTech knowingly copied some of the key elements of Moderna's patented technology. And so they're not trying to actually stop the sale of um, their COVID vaccine or do anything that would interfere with the vaccination campaign, but they do want some some monetary, um, you know, some money from them starting this spring and going forward. So we'll have to see how it plays out um, in the court. But um, you could see that, um, you know, it's a big deal for, um, for the companies and also, you know, just the public at large watching this. Tell us what Moderna is after in this litigation and what's the likelihood that the company is going to be successful here? Yeah, so Moderna is not seeking to stop the sale of Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine, but they are seeking what would be essentially a royalty. So, you know, a, a cut of the, the money that they make on the sales of their vaccine. And they're saying that they only want some money um, starting from earlier this spring and going forward and only in high-income countries. And it's a little complicated, but it has to do with the fact that Moderna made this pledge um, two years ago saying that it would not enforce its patents during the pandemic. And then this spring, they said 
never mind, actually, we are only going to enforce or to not enforce our patents in low-income countries. So it's the way that um, all of those steps have played out, it seems like they're trying to match up by saying, you know, now we are only seeking money from this period of time. But the real question is whether they can go back on that pledge that they made two years ago. Um, one legal expert we spoke to said that they can't. Um, so that's something that'll be really interesting to watch. So is, is that pledge something that Pfizer and Biotech can use in their defense against this lawsuit? Yeah. So um, Jorge Contreras, the professor from the University of Utah who we spoke to, he says that under the law, these patent pledges are considered contracts. So the companies, it's a public company, they made a public statement, and other companies um, can use that information to make decisions about their own strategies, which obviously Pfizer and BioNTech went out and introduced their own COVID vaccine. So they could argue that they were just operating under, you know, under um, the assumption that Moderna was not going to enforce its patents. So at least the way he, um, he sees it, Pfizer and BioNTech have a pretty good defense here. It might not even get into all of the details of the patents and, you know, who used what and, you know, what was patented and what wasn't. But that could be that contract, the patent pledge could be a solid defense for Pfizer and BioNTech. Uh, did this lawsuit have any impact on the company's um, market shares uh, for either Moderna or Pfizer? So they did see a little bit of a hit the other day. Um, you know, these things, they're not expecting, analysts are not expecting it to be a big moneymaker for either, um, for Moderna if they even do win. And that's just because, um, according to precedent, we haven't seen a huge impact. Like these um, payments haven't been jaw-dropping, especially in the context of the billions of dollars that Moderna has made so far. Um, but of course, these things take a long time. They're expensive. So I think you can imagine that investors are a little bit nervous to see what exactly happens and the impact it has on all of the companies involved. So news of this lawsuit comes out just as we're, we're learning we're all going to be eligible for another shot uh, after Labor Day. Will this lawsuit uh, potentially have any effect on the availability of future COVID shots? From our understanding, no, because Moderna says they're not trying to stop the production uh, or stop the sale of Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID vaccine. So the way at least um, the complaint was written and the damages they're seeking, it doesn't seem that there would be any um, any disruption there. I'm I'm curious if this if there could be any ulterior motives here um, on Moderna's behalf as to why they're bringing this lawsuit against Pfizer. Yeah, well, they're saying that. They're trying to protect the technology that they've spent so long trying to develop. So you could see that as, well, they're trying to make sure this doesn't happen again. You know, if, if Pfizer and BioNTech did even infringe on their patents, which obviously the companies say they did not. But um, again, the legal expert we spoke to, he said that it's probably, it wouldn't be surprising if Moderna's been trying to get Pfizer and BioNTech to negotiate some sort of royalty in the background here, and maybe those talks haven't gone well. And so now um, Moderna is going to doing the lawsuit because of that. He says it's a classic strategy to sue companies um, into getting them to license technology that you think that um, is yours. So that's one possibility for sure.
That's Bloomberg News reporter Angelica Peebles. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. Up next, we talk about state Supreme Court judicial races and which ones are worth paying attention to. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Greg Storr. This is Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Greg Storr. We're in for June Grosso. State Supreme Court races in a number of states are being closely watched this year for their potential to affect a host of issues, including congressional maps and abortion restrictions. We're joined now by Jake Falaschini, legal director at the Progressive Alliance for Justice Action Fund, which has been tracking these races. So, Jake, um, Michigan, North Carolina, Illinois, and Ohio are, are for the states that have been highlighted as having particularly important races. Can you just tell us generally why those four races are such a big deal? Sure, and thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, So all four of those states are states where you have a fairly divided electorate um, and also where you have a divided Supreme Court um, ideologically. So generally speaking, in Michigan, we have a Uh, 4-3 Democratic majority on that Supreme Court. In North Carolina, we also have a 4-3 Democratic majority on that Supreme Court. And uh, in Illinois, we have a 4-3 Democratic majority on that Supreme Court. Um, In Ohio, however, we have a 3-3-1 Supreme Court with three Democrats, three Republicans, and one independent who is a Republican that sometimes sides with the Democrats on uh, issues of democracy and voting rights. 
Talk about why um, party control matters here and, um, you know, how these races could impact which um, party is in control. Sure. Generally speaking, um, what we've seen, at least over the last 10 to 15 years, is a sort of consolidation around issues of democracy um, in differences between Republicans and Democrats and how they um, how they approach those issues of democracy. Um, Republicans have tended to be more restrictive on uh, on voting, on access to the polls, on redistricting, on gerrymandering, whereas Democrats have tended to be more um, open on those issues, more liberal on those issues, trying to expand the franchise, expand the right, uh, protect the rights of minorities to vote when they're being restricted. For uh, several of those states going forward, uh, some with with litigation that is currently pending, other with litigation that we, uh, we, you know, we can't foresee it might come out of a future election. Um, the justices who sits on those courts uh, might matter for um, how those uh, how those uh, different cases are decided. Yeah. So you you recently tweeted that the state Supreme Court races in in Wisconsin, which I guess is next April, as well as the ones in Mi- Michigan, North Carolina, and Ohio this fall, are about as important to our democracy as these things get. Can you dive into that a little bit more? Why, why are these races so important? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so uh, I think Michigan is a perfect example of why these sorts of uh, races are extremely, extremely important. Um, in Michigan, after the 2020 election, several lawsuits were brought in front of the state's, uh, state courts um, challenging the results. Uh, in um, at least one 4-3 case, the Democratic majority concluded that the election results should be certified. Um, had they not be, been certified and in a timely manner, um, that could have allowed uh, even more chicanery to happen in, uh, this, in the final determination of, of the election result nationally. Um, in, uh, and in 2022, 2024, um, after the current election cycles, who who are in those positions deciding those election case outcomes uh, could be determinative of um, how uh, elections are certified. Um, same, I think, is true also in Wisconsin, where currently you have a 4-3 uh, Republican Supreme Court, um, and that court has overwhelmingly decided to restrict voting rights um, in several decisions that have come down over the past decade. Um, and uh, in next year's election, uh, Wisconsin voters will have the opportunity to uh, change potentially the, uh, the partisan makeup of that court, flipping it to a 4-3 Democratic majority, um, in which case I think that you would see that that uh, Supreme Court would be uh, much more responsive to concerns over uh, over um, issues of, of uh, redistricting um, voter restriction, um, limiting ballot boxes, that sort of thing. There seems to be more of a focus on state Supreme Courts now than there has been in the past. And I was wondering, to what extent is the U.S. Supreme Court's abortion decision driving that? Um, I think it is definitely driving that. Uh, we've seen uh, a, a huge concern over um, state constitutional rights to an abortion, Um and a, and a renewed focus on this issue. Um, I think that that's a good thing, generally. Um, state Supreme Courts have always determined um, many of our rights and liberties. 
Um, state Supreme Courts here, 95 percent of all of the lawsuits that are filed um, in America every year. Um, and they've always had an outweighed um, uh, impact on our rights and liberties. The fact that people are paying more attention now um, is great. And if people uh, start to consider whether or not our state constitutions might afford even greater rights and liberties that our federal uh, constitution does, um, then I think that that can be incredibly positive for the rights of, of many, um, although it isn't a complete band-aid for the fact that the, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court is stripping away so many important rights nationally. Let's just take a step back and, and talk about how state Supreme Court justices get on the court in the first place. We've been talking about some states where uh, voters go to the polls and, and vote on uh, state Supreme Court justices, but uh, it does vary a bit from state to state, right? It does. That's correct. Um, generally speaking, about half of the justices in the United or, uh, state Supreme Court justices in the United States each year uh, are elected and half are appointed. Um, of those that are elected, again, about half and half, it's not completely accurate, but it's a close estimate, um, are uh, elected nonpartisan races, and about half of those that are elected are elected in partisan races. Um, so, uh, like you said, it varies widely state to state. Uh, there are two real anomalies where the legislature picks uh, the justices in those states. Uh, that's uh, in South Carolina and Virginia. Um, and even in those states where, there are, where justices are elected, uh, it's a little bit different uh, when those justices might appear on the ballot, what's in it, whether it's in an uh, odd year or in, a, um, or in an even year, presidential, congressional. Um, so every state does it a little bit different. Um, and so it's, uh, it's not surprising that folks around the country might, might not know exactly um, how, how the judges and justices in their states are picked. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. Up next, we continue our conversation with Jake Falaschini, Legal Director at Alliance for Justice Action Fund. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. We're in for June Grasso. We've been talking with Jake Falaschini, legal director at Alliance for Justice Action Fund, which has been tracking state Supreme Court races. Jake, how common is it for state Supreme Court justices to lose a retention election? And does this happen when there's a coordinated effort by Republicans to oust someone? Um, that's a great question. So it hasn't happened that often in history, uh, but there are some recent, recent examples of when it's happened, especially when you have coordinated and well-funded attacks um, on current sitting justices. Um, so a couple of good examples of this that folks normally point to historically are um, back in the early 2000s when the Illinois uh, State Supreme Court found a constitutional right uh, for LGBTQ folks to marry. Um, after that, uh, Republicans and conservative organizations launched a coordinated uh, uh, sitting Supreme Court justices who had ruled in favor of that constitutional right. Um, and, uh, and three of those justices were ousted from the court. Um, similar instances have happened, say, in Illinois, uh, a sitting Supreme Court justice lost a retention election in 2020. Um, in Michigan, this happened a few years ago as well. 
um, and other attacks have been launched uh, against current sitting justices. Um, ultimately, many of those were unsuccessful, but sometimes they do happen. How much does money play a role in all this? Uh, are, are we seeing just a significant additional amount of money going into state Supreme Court races and retention battles? Yes, absolutely. It plays a huge role. Um, our uh, friends at the Brennan Center have done a great job tracking the flood of money into judicial elections over time. Um, and I would highly suggest that listeners take a look at their great resources on the state Supreme Courts and, and money that uh, floods into those races. But generally speaking, over time, we've seen a um, huge increase in the amount of money that's gone into these judicial elections. Um, and uh, and often times those are coordinated by uh, groups that have a very particular idea of what results they want um, out of the election. And often what we also see is that the advertising doesn't necessarily match up with the end results that they want. So business groups will often, for example, launch attacks on justices where they don't like the outcome of business decisions in their cases, yet their advertising will often focus on issues of criminal law um, and focus on, um, you know, advertisements that uh, might uh, impugn the justices around their decisions on uh, criminality and other issues like that. Let's talk a little bit about the particular states um, with these races that are worth worth watching. Um, Can you talk to us about what's happening in in Illinois? Like, what are the issues that could come before uh, the state Supreme Court there um, where an ideological shift would make a big impact? So going back to your earlier question, I think one of the most obvious is going to be abortion. Um, That issue could definitely come back before the Illinois Supreme Court. Um, if that court were to flip from a liberal to more conservative uh, majority. If that were to happen, then, you know, it becomes a question as to whether or not uh, the right to an abortion could still be uh, deemed uh, legal in Illinois. And that has a huge downstream effect on other uh, Midwestern uh, states um, because Illinois dips so deep into the Midwest. Um, that the right to an abortion is often protected for other Midwestern people um, through Illinois still having that right. There are so many issues and many other issues that are going to be in front of that state state Supreme Court, um, issues of uh, business law and issues of, um, you know, criminal rights and um, all, all sorts of other issues would come before that court, too. And one other, one other state we've talked about a little bit is Ohio. Are the issues the same there, or are they different from Illinois? In Ohio, I, the, you have many of the same issues, but also I would just stress the importance of democracy cases there. Um, you have a state legislature in Ohio and a state governor that um, have done everything that they possibly can, really, to restrict the right to vote in that state, hundreds of thousands of voters are stripped from the rolls every year in Ohio. Um, They've gerrymandered the state legislature to an incredible degree. Um, There really is, uh, there are many cases there uh, to protect the right to vote that I think um, would be um, extremely uh, uh, under threat with a more conservative court there.
That's Jake Falaschini at Alliance for Justice Action Fund. Thanks for joining us, Jake. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. Up next, we're joined by Jennifer Levi, director of GLAD's Transgender Rights Project, to talk about a recent appeals court decision that expanded legal protections for transgender workers. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Greg Storr. This is Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Steeple and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Steeple's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Steeple last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Greg Storr. We're in for June Grosso. Earlier this month, the 4th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals declared gender dysphoria a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Joining us now is Jennifer Levi, director of GLAD's Transgender Rights Project. GLAD stands for the GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. Uh, Jennifer, thanks for joining us. Um, talk a little bit about this ruling. Tell us how significant it is and, and what it means for transgender and gender-fluid people. Yeah. So thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, this is a really important decision that makes it clear that there's no exclusion under the ADA for disability claims that are brought by transgender people. The reality is that because of both misunderstandings about gender dysphoria as a health condition and also because of outdated language in the ADA, there have been people and courts that have um, in the past said that transgender people can't bring disability claims, and this really clarifies that individuals can, which is a very important source of federal protections. Can you explain what gender dysphoria is and how someone um, with it might benefit from being covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act? Yeah, absolutely. So gender dysphoria is the 
clinically significant distress that a transgender person experiences if they can't live consistent with the gender identity that they know themselves to be. So, for example, a transgender woman is somebody who is assigned the sex of male at birth, but uh, has the identity and internalized experience of being a female. And so gender dysphoria is the experience that that individual has if they can't live as a woman. How, how did this ruling by the Fourth Circuit come about? What was the underlying dispute that, that got us here? Yeah, so the underlying dispute in this case was that there is uh, was a transgender woman who was um, incarcerated and denied medical treatment and uh, made to reside with men despite having lived as a woman. And so she brought a claim under this very important source of federal protections against discrimination because of having a stigmatized medical condition. And the court decision in this case makes clear that she has to be fairly treated and that fair treatment has to take into account the medical condition that she experiences. And so basically it means, you know, that transgender women have to be uh, treated uh, in, you know, this case it was um, in a prison, but the ADA applies in other contexts, including in workplaces and public accommodations and other public institutions. And so she has to be treated like other women would be treated. Can you give us some specific examples about how people, transgender people, could benefit by being covered under the ADA? I mean, I know that you, you mentioned accommodations, um, you mentioned things in the workplace. Can you give us some examples as to, to how this could uh, be a benefit? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the workplace provides a lot of uh, examples where, um, you know, it's really important for a transgender woman to be treated like other women. It may involve um, uh, making sure that uh, you can, you know, if there's a dress code in the workplace, conform with the female dress code. Certainly, if there are um, accommodations for changing or for restroom access, making sure that she has access to those. Um, for, trans- for transgender people who might be um, taking, you know, a period of time to transition, then it's important that they get the um, uh, accommodations for any kind of medical care that they might need during a particular gap of time. So, I mean, one of the things I want to say is that, you know, the ADA has been such an important source of protection for people who are fully capable of contributing and working but are facing barriers because of the stigma and misunderstandings associated with some underlying medical condition. And this is such an important decision because it really levels the playing field for transgender people in those um, spheres like the workplace or public institutions where the ADA applies. Let me uh, dig in a little bit to the legal battle here. So the ADA includes some language that says this law excludes people with gender identity disorders. Now, and that's a phrase that we don't use anymore, and perhaps more importantly, psychiatrists don't use anymore. Isn't it, though, or or the argument, at least from the dissent and and the other side in this case, was that it it is an indication that maybe Congress meant to exclude transgender and gender fluid people from the statute? What's the counter to that? Yeah, I mean, what the majority said is that uh, that language of gender identity disorders is outdated. 
um, and doesn't reflect the current medical understanding of gender dysphoria, which is the underlying medical condition that this individual experienced. And so, um, you know, just looking at the plain, the plain text and the plain meaning of what that exclusion reflected, there would be no basis to deny somebody who experiences gender dysphoria, which is a different medical condition than, than you know, gender identity disorders, which was excluded under the original law. So just like a straight-on textual reading suggests there's no basis for excluding transgender people. But what the majority also recognized is that to the extent that it were to be read to create that categorical exclusion, that that really violates the most basic guarantees of equal protection, which is that you can't be excluded from a law's protection just because of bias um, or animus against a particular group. Do you think that the ADA should be amended um, at some point? And, and, and do you think that lawmakers wrote it in a way, um, in, in a kind of a bigoted way? Yeah, look, I mean, I think there is very clear um, testimony and very clear history, that legislative history that has been unearthed that does reflect the fact that, you know, there were some legislators um, who who were speaking, you know, out of, of from a very biased uh, and discriminatory perspective, and yeah, I think it creates a stain on that law to have that exclusion written into it, and ultimately, it would make sense to update the language and get rid of the you know archaic references. But the reason why this case, you know, is so important is that transgender people should not have to wait for that change in order to. Um, be able to secure such important federal protections. But, yeah, I mean, there's probably a lot of ways in which our laws uh, need to be updated and doing so would be important, but um, those who should be protected by the laws should not have to wait. And actually, I want to say one other one other side of that, if, if I have a minute, which is this is important not just for transgender people, but also, you know, for the workplaces and the public institutions to which they contribute. I mean, the point of the ADA was to ensure that people who can thrive and make contributions aren't held back um, by, you know, misunderstandings, by stigma associated with medical condition. And the point is really so that we can all benefit from the contributions that they can make. So this is obviously just one federal appeals court, important decision, but just one. Where have other courts come down on this? Where does uh, the, the state of the law stand nationwide on this issue? Yeah, so no, there have been a number of, at this point, federal district courts, which have uh, are in agreement with what um, the Fourth Circuit recently said. And so, at, I mean, at this point, it, it is very much the um, prevailing understanding of, of the ADA, which is that it does apply. Um, it can be used um, in, you know, where somebody faces discrimination or bias because of the medical condition of gender dysphoria. This is the first circuit court uh, decision, but there are a number of federal district courts which are aligned with the outcome here. How should employers uh, who are trying to comply with this law respond to this decision? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think one of the ways to respond is to just make sure that people's HR policies are taking into account and ensuring equal treatment for um, anyone who seeks an accommodation because of 
gender dysphoria or who is trying to ensure that they have full and equal access to um, the workplace or, you know, other public accommodations, public, uh, including, you know, federal um, places for which not just the Americans with Disabilities Act, but also the Federal Rehab Act applies. And so it's really just making sure that there's that the touchstone is equal treatment, you know, to the extent because employers have to have, you know, um, uh, policies to address ADA accommodations and prohibitions against discrimination. And so this is just making sure that there's no carve out or no exclusion for transgender people. It's the touchstone is uh, equal equal treatment. Given the importance of this issue and uh, the, the the fact that there is some disagreement among lower court judges, uh, as evidenced by the dissenting judge in this case, does this seem like an issue that inevitably is going to be decided by the Supreme Court? Um, I'm actually not convinced of that because, you know, I think that, um, you know, the Fourth Circuit got it right here. I think that we are likely to see other favorable decisions um, if there are issues or cases that go up on appeal, as I said, there's a growing number of federal district courts that have also clarified there's no exclusion for gender dysphoria under the ADA. And, you know, I think that this is kind of an issue where, as I said, just a, like a, you know, straightforward, plain reading of the text of the statute um, would would support this outcome here. And so, don't think that we're going to see a a divide among uh, appeals courts on this issue. But we'll see. I'm hopeful. Uh, Well, that's Jennifer Levi, director of GLAD's Transgender Rights Project. Thanks for joining us, Jennifer. Yeah, thanks for uh, inviting me on. I appreciate the coverage. And that does it for this episode of Bloomberg Law. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Greg Storr. This is Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.